Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here at KubeCon in San Diego, and I'm with Bob Killen. Bob is a research cloud administrator at the University of Michigan. Bob, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you. Awesome. So uh, we met yesterday. You were on the AI ML uh, media and analyst panel talking a little bit about your experiences using Kubernetes to support the researchers there uh, at the University of Michigan. And you're also one of the other roles you play is you're a co-chair of the CNCF's research uh, user group. Uh, so really interested in hearing a little bit about your experiences with, uh, sounds like you work with Kubernetes kind of to support a broad portfolio of applications, not just ML and AI. Is that yep. right? Uh, we run a wide variety of applications, uh, both you know AI and ML focused like Kubeflow, uh, but we have a whole slew of other supporting services that our researchers uh, consume generally on our larger HPC cluster. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started working with Kubernetes? I moved over to ArcTS, Microbe Advanced Research Computing and Technology Services, about three years ago. But before that, I worked for the University of Michigan Hospital. And in 2015, we started going down the container route for a lot of our clinical workflows. This is sort of before Docker was a thing. Uh, So we were predominantly like LXC containers. And we were first looking at Kubernetes to orchestrate that, but Kubernetes wasn't mature enough at the time, and we went uh, for Mesos. From there, we then shifted back and forth and um, also started supporting our research workloads sort of alongside our clinical workflows on there. They sort of saw you know, some of the benefits of containerization and just wanted to take advantage of the, the broader service that we were offering. Uh, from there, uh, I was hired by ArcTS to sort of build out the same thing, but be completely research focused, um, as well as like managing a, a virtualization system. And Kubernetes has really exploded when it comes to the the broader management and adoption of containers. And um, you know, we have things like the the Cube Spawner in, in Jupyter Hub that just integrates directly with it. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's just you said the Cube Spawner. Uh, Cube Spawner. I'm sorry. Cube Spawner in yeah. Jupiter. Uh, in Jupiter Hub. Hub. Yeah. Got it. So I can spin up a notebook as a uh, container itself. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the various use cases that you're supporting? What are some of your researchers doing? Oh man, it's a, a pretty broad stru- uh, spectrum. On top of Kubernetes, we support a bunch of social science stuff, uh, various databases uh, that are consumed um, by other applications and people running workloads in our large HPC cluster. Uh, and we do support, uh, we uh, have a significantly large uh, Jupyter environment, a lot for classes and uh, other researchers that are spinning stuff up. Bioinformatics, physics, um, I think that those are most of the big ones. Okay. And... So is the primary user experience among your researchers the Jupyter Notebook and the ability to spawn off uh, containers from the notebook environment? Yep. Over time, we've seen a gradual shift of people, you know, sort of the moving away from the classic HPC style system where you would log into like there'd be SSH and a login node, and you'd run your system or you'd you'd queue something up and, and run it off. Now there's sort of an expectation for to, to have the Jupyter notebook or to have some other sort of 
science gateway for the user to consume. It's it's a lot you know friendlier than than having to, to dig in and write like a uh, you know batch script to, to automate some of the stuff for you. One of the things that's different between kind of the the classical HPC scale up systems and the more distributed environments that uh, we see now and that are common uh, with Kubernetes is that in order to take advantage of uh, these distributed environments, the users, and in your case, the researchers, have to know about them and kind of know how to, to to use them in a lot of cases, write their you know code to take advantage of distributed computing. Are your researchers, you know, doing that, or are you? Are there, you know, things that you've put in place that uh, provide abstractions so that they don't have to uh, think about that? Um, we do have some abstractions in play that uh, make it much easier. Uh, Argo workflows and things of that nature have okay. simplified things greatly for people. Then, of course, there are some power users that you know will will just want to dive in and do everything themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in in general, we have a pretty good suite of tools and libraries to make that easy for them. Uh, the social scientist isn't kind of the target user for a Kubeflow. You know, yet they're, you know, using Kubernetes, Kubeflow in your case, it sounds like the Argo workflows, um, you know, are, well, you didn't say that necessarily the social scientists were using the Argo workflows and Kubeflow, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how Kubeflow in particular is used in this environment. Kubeflow itself, uh, we don't have any social science people using Kubeflow. Um, the Kubeflow stuff is mostly used by a, a small subset of people. And right now, I'd say more in an experimentation stage. Mm-hmm. But the the aspects of it really sort of make, especially like the model life cycle of things, uh, significantly easier for people. And we sort of see much more people shifting and adopting it uh, going forward. Maybe talk a little bit about that user experience, like what do they have to do to get their apps up and running in the Kubeflow environment? They don't have to do too much. They can do most of it from the Jupyter notebooks that Kubeflow spins up and, and manages for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, um, I forget the the Argo or the uh, the Kubeflow CLI tool, mm-hmm. but that allows them to create some uh, workflows pretty easy too. And there's there's some other things being built that allows for like better like designing build, and building better pipelines and um, more consumable workflows. Maybe talking generally, what from the your participation in this panel, I got the impression that you're pretty excited about uh, Kubernetes as a, a platform generally for these types of research workloads. Maybe talk a little bit about you know why you're excited about it. Sure, Kubernetes provides a lot of uh, like proper abstractions for just managing a variety of workloads and. Though the things that it cannot handle, it offers the extension points to easily extend and augment. So like Kubernetes itself does not have any capability of running a like standard MPI job or a you know gang scheduled job. But because the extension points are there, it's easy enough to sort of write your own scheduler to handle that. And it's just like a little, you know, one variable change, then use that scheduler to spin up and manage that workload. And by using Kubernetes itself and this extension mechanism, you gain um, the accessibility of using everything else that's being developed on top of Kubernetes. Uh, Whereas in the past, you know, again, going back to the classic HPC system, there wasn't any of these other, uh, this other tooling and APIs to really do any of this stuff. So now we can get, you can do a lot more such as like eventing and 
triggering different workflows off different things happening within the system. Mm -hmm. uh, we're definitely seeing a, a much more broader adoption of things like data streaming and, and Flink. And, and, you know, this stuff you couldn't really, you know, do well on a classic HPC system, but it, it works and fits quite well on top of Kubernetes and you can integrate it with a whole slew of other things that are being built on top of it. Are you supporting uh, users that are doing things like building out their own schedulers or are these things that the broader community is doing and they can just kind of take off the shelf and take advantage of? Right now, the it's mostly from the broader community and our users can then take that off the shelf. Mm -hmm. uh, Kubeflow itself has a MPI operator built into it. So that okay. you know makes it easier for the, the people consuming Kubeflow to spin up an MPI job. Um, and then there's other things like uh, Volcano, which are trying to offer much more of the classic uh, batch computing things that we'd find in HPC for Kubernetes directly. Mm -hmm. Drill down a little bit deeper into that. What is Volcano specifically? Uh, Volcano is a uh, open source project that is trying to be sort of the classic HPC scheduler, workload manager, uh, thinking like Slurm, but built for Kubernetes. So it is offering things like uh, you know, fair share, queues, um, backfill, as well as offering things uh, like, you know, being able to support gang, gang jobs and, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea there uh, being that as a, a research cloud administrator, you've got some pool of resources, you've got some pool of people that want to take advantage of these resources. How do you uh, fairly or consistently give them access to the resources? And so, you know, fair share being, you know, one idea there. Um, gang scheduling is more like I've got these five things that need to go at the same time. And exactly. How do I ensure that they're happening in concert with one another? Yep. And then like if a, you know, worker happens to die, you don't want to necessarily kill the entire job. Whereas, you know, if sort of the, the controller dies, you want to then, you know, kill and requeue the entire job. For us and for um, sort of the larger sites that are, you know, still primarily uh, on-prem and focused on like bare metal, you know, we have a finite amount of resources. We aren't necessarily bursting up to the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to backfill and set priorities on things is very useful for us as well as, you know, queues. Um, for us, it is like we want to backfill with, you know, jobs from students. They might be able to run those for, for free. But if we have a, you know, researcher that's queuing something, we want to, you know, have those take priority and sort of bump off those lower priority jobs. When we think about in the context of machine learning, uh, some of these jobs uh, like neural network training, deep learning uh, training, uh, they can take you know many you know days or weeks. Um, but that's not a new thing in the context of, of HPC. Are the the workloads that you're tending to support also uh, kind of these long running uh, jobs, but but not necessarily deep learning training? Yeah, we have we support again being a that handles the research needs for the entire university. We have a, a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and most of our jobs would probably fit into that category um, where they, you know, might take, you know, a week to complete or something or something of that nature. I think our, our max wall time is 21 days. Oh, wow. And what, can you say what that is? I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but we've had several that are just like cranking through, uh, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they have something that just, you know, hits the wall time, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate for the researcher, yeah. but it will uh, kill it off. 
Oh, so the, this max wall time isn't the biggest job that you've seen. It's the limit that you've set. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. <laughs> if they have something that runs longer than that, we're going to give them the boot. Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, or not nice, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Asked this question yesterday that you disagreed with, um, or that you disagreed with the premise, and that that was that um, you know one of the things that I've you know noted here in this conference. The conference has gotten huge. I was at I don't think I was at the first one in San Francisco. I may have been, but I was definitely at the second U.S. one in Seattle. And that was fifteen hundred people, and now it's twelve thousand. Yeah. It is massive, and you know the the kind of thought that I posited was, you know, that growth is not in machine learning and AI users. It's in like cloud native, you know, I'm building web apps users, right? And those users have very different concerns, uh, potentially, you know, than the ML and AI users. And I, I, I kind of pose as a, a straw man, like, is it possible or is there, you know, any concern that, you know, that growing kind of user base and momentum, but focused on a kind of a different use case would have negative impacts on the ML and AI users like, hey, you know, to do XYZ in Kubeflow, you need feature or API, ABC, but that's a super low priority because none of the web app people need it. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, yeah, no, that's, I'm not worried about that. So yeah, react to that a little bit. Some of that stuff like uh, is there. So there is like still some issues with like uh, Numa. And some of the more, it's Numa? Uh, yeah, it's the essentially mapping of RAM to CPU core. Okay. Um, and when you're scheduling a job, you really don't want to like cross Numa domains. So okay. you generally want to, you know, and there'll be like GPUs and things like that that are also sort of tied to that. So you don't want to have a pod scheduled on like this other core that then has to sort of jump and go through a round to a different like Numa domain and path to mm -hmm. talk to a GPU. And so some of that stuff, those primitives aren't exactly there, but at this point, there's, you know, some pretty strong drivers for that. Uh, a lot from Intel, NVIDIA, and those groups to sort of, you know, firm up those lower end components. Um, and then some of the other things, there's like enough sort of extensions, extension points where the core of Kubernetes might not be able to, you know, cater that well to AI machine working, um, AI and machine learning workloads, but an outside developer could, you know, hook into it or replace that component fairly easily and then enable it for again more research uh, workloads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically the the whole panel said essentially, yeah, no, you have there's nothing to look at here, nothing to worry <laughs> about that, which was a little less than satisfying, but I think the key takeaway was that the belief was that the Kubernetes core is general enough and has enough extension points that the specific use case, you know, this, the the dominance of the web use case, you know, isn't necessarily going to derail its use in, in other cases. And I think you or someone else mentioned it. And even, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to, it's not just the web use case isn't as homogenous as I'm making it sound. There are a bunch of use cases there. And like, there's enough diversity uh, in workloads that the, the, the core is kind of staying general and extensible. You're shaking your head. Yep, yes, you. Yep, sorry. I probably should be answering. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, the core, the the people behind the core, you know, Google, Borg, going all the way back, definitely built it in mind to be extendable. They, they knew from the get go that 
you know, lots of things might come and go in. And if you sort of really tied it to one, you know, specific design decision, you'd limit yourself in the future because you really wouldn't know, you know, what's going to happen in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who, who knows, you know, um, co-scheduling or, you know, gang might actually make its way into Kubernetes core. But right now that's not really a priority, but it's easy enough to extend and, and add through, you know, the various extension points. What are the biggest gaps or things missing, you know, as you are trying to support these AI and ML workloads? The biggest gap from a general adoption standpoint, I would say, is documentation of best practices. Hmm. Um, There's, you know, some blog posts and things like that out there, but there is no concise guide uh, when it comes to how do we design and build a cluster, what settings should we set for this sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, as part of the research user group, we've pulled a you know whole slew of users, and had you know we pulled them actually like live uh, the other day during the session, and documentation and just guided best practices was the number one request mm-hmm. both times, and by a wide variety of groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard similar by the way, and uh, one particular point that was raised was, you know, for the documentation that does exist and the tutorials that do exist, it's all very GCP focused. And so, you know, there's a whole other set of mental exercises and translations you need to do to get it up and running on AWS, for example. Yeah. So besides from documentation? Uh, Besides documentation from, I would say, Broader standpoint, it's a lot of those, the, the, the things that like Volcano were trying to add uh, from a base functionality standpoint. So again, things queues, backfill, better pod priority and preemption capabilities and things like that, at least to support a better multi-tenant or I would say a multi-workload um, um, environment. Mm-hmm. And what's the state of uh, GPU support for in Kubernetes? Is it as flexible as you need it to be to support um, the kind of right environments? Right now, you, you can't share GPUs like you can in, in some other environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a little bit of a problem. I, I don't know the status of it. I know there's like an open issue on it. Meaning you may support fractional CPUs or, yep. you know, cores. You'd like to be able to offer users fractional GPUs. Correct. Um, and okay. there's a, like on some of the NVIDIA GPUs, you can sort of like carve them up and and give like, you know, half of it to a container. Okay. But that flexibility still isn't like, isn't really firmed up yet. It sounds like that's something that would have to come through Kubernetes core as opposed to an extension or... Um, I think that would be probably through, that might be through NVIDIA and their driver. I'm not 100% certain. Okay. I'd have to go back and look. There's there's a long issue that's been open, I think, since uh, early 2018, where mm-hmm. there's been a lot of discussion on in sort of, you know, who should handle this and where should it be done? Okay, um, I can I can dig it up later too if you if sure. You like. Yeah, I mean, you know, curious. I'd be curious to kind of read through uh, its evolution. So GPU support. Your role is kind of managing the Kubernetes cluster, kind of independent of these use cases. How many kind of machines, containers, nodes are you dealing with? Uh, right now, we have about twenty different research groups that are using our our. 
cl- or our clusters. Mm-hmm. Um, we have three separate clusters. One that we sort of use that like has a bunch of our persis- persistent services that we consume, mm-hmm. and they provide services to the other clusters. So things like identity management and like a central point for logging. And then we have uh, another cluster that is for our non-restricted data workloads. Um, that's our, lar- our our relatively general use cluster. And um, I don't remember the stats off the top of my head, but that's about like, honestly, it's actually pretty small, about 14, uh, 14 nodes okay. and probably 800 gigs of RAM. I don't remember the the cores off the top of my head. Okay. Um, and then we have another, our restricted data cluster. Uh, we do have, it's a little bit smaller, um, and we don't let the end users like talk to that one or consume that one directly, but we will spin up and manage workloads for them. Okay. That's mostly for uh, healthcare. Like HIPAA yep. types of, okay, got it. When you think about the AI ML workloads that uh, your users are asking for, like where, where do you see the, where do you see things going from a user perspective? What do they want to do relative to where they are now? What are the things that they're asking about? What are the things they're curious about, excited about? Uh, honestly, it's it's mostly extending and better integration of like notebooks into okay. the various workflows. Because we also have a classic HPC system, uh, it's very hard to integrate that with the Kubernetes native ecosystem of tools. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had and sort of been experimenting with a little bit of bridging the two worlds. Is our, our HPC system has uh, like 30,000 cores. Mm-hmm. And you know, dramatically larger than our Kubernetes environment, uh, but it doesn't have like the it, well, it it sort of does, but it doesn't have like the ease of use that Kubernetes and the, the, our front end does. So we've been doing a little bit of like uh, syncing POSIX identities, sort of the the Linux UID and GID, and and mapping to our parallel shared file system uh, underneath the hood that's consumed by both services. And for for our users, that has been sort of like the the next big evolution. Um, and I know. Like some of the like national labs and other larger sites are are also t- having um, that same issue. And maybe uh, kind of last question, going back to this, you know, documentation being the the biggest gap. Like, how do you think that gets solved in a community like this? Uh, um, <laughs> well, there are several groups that have some internal documentation, um, and they've sorted out some best practices. Uh, and there's been a couple of good blog posts. Uh, the OpenAI blog post, uh, I think from about a year ago regarding like scaling Kubernetes and running ML workloads on 2,500 nodes, mm-hmm. uh, was a really good one on some of the, the, the issues that you'd run into that sort of thing. Yep. And I did an interview with, uh, one of the folks on that team. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Continue. Cool. And, uh, like I've, I've been talking to some of the folks at like CERN, they have some, they've teased out a lot of really good best practices, uh, for, for now, it's mostly been like time and sort of bringing it all concisely together. Uh, for now, it'll probably be, you know, scrubbing it of any, you know, related, you know, internal related documentation and then like dumping into the Git, Git repo. Uh, there's a, a Git repo for the CNCF research uh, user group. And that's sort of, you know, our, our collection point of all, all this various stuff. And once it's there, we'll sort of try and, you know, hit it again and make it a bit more concise. It, it sounds like a lot of the need is broader than, you know, just research users. It's everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that still, like, don't necessarily how to run Kubernetes well. And, and, and definitely heard that a lot here at KubeCon. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You mentioned CERN. They're kind of noted for um, using OpenStack for the infrastructure management. Do you use OpenStack? Uh, we do not use OpenStack. Okay. Um, we use, it's a uh, proprietary virtualization product that was uh, donated to the University of Michigan. It's by a local Michigan company. Cool. Uh, well, Bob, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.